This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. We are here. We are here live, both on Pet Life Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This great Sunday morning, at least here in LA. Here for you, here for your pets. Uh, answer any questions you might have. Thank you, my Instagram live friends, for joining me here. Again, get your questions ready. Anyway, how to get a hold of me? Well, here on Instagram Live, just type away. Uh, you know how easy it is, and I'll be happy to discuss with you anything I can. And, oh, I already have a question. Good. We'll get to that in a minute. Eloise, Vicky, how can you tell how much a mutt will grow to at six months? He's nine pounds. Good question. I can best. Hey, B, how you doing? He can only, well, it's an average. There's no, obviously, as I said, the dog didn't read the book. Here on Pet Life Radio, easy to get a hold of me, number one, the good old-fashioned way, 877-385-8882. 877-385-8882. Better yet, you can join me here live by just going to PetLifeRadio.com, click on Shows, Ask the Vets with Dr. Jeff, and just go um, be, have your pet with you. That way I can see your pet, see what's going on. I like that so much better. So let's get to the first question. And I always have stuff to talk about. For me, I think this show is the best success when I don't ever get to the stuff that I'm ready to talk about. When you guys have questions, you want answers, we get on discussions. I think that's so much better. But um, anyway, here we are. So first question, how can you tell how much a mutt will grow? Six months old, he's already nine pounds. Here's what I tell people. And again, this is not a hard and fast rule. The dogs didn't read the book. We don't know now with all these different breeds and the doodles and the schmoodles and all that. I'll take my daughters, for example. My daughter, Rana, got this magnificent, adorable mini golden doodle. His name is Quinn. He's absolutely adorable. He's like two colors. He's got green eyes. What a great pup, right? And he was so cute. He still is cute, but he's not a mini anymore. He didn't read the mini book. And that's the problem. By the time we neutered him, he was 55 pounds. Now he's 62 pounds. So, I mean, what are you going to do? When you think about the crosses, there's no way to predict. I remember, if you remember, you know, back in, in the day, you know, the famous Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor, right? That's how I knew him from UCLA. His parents were like both under six feet. And he's what, you know, seven, one, whatever it is. I mean, you just never know. Somewhere in that gene pool, there was an ancestor that was nine feet tall. And before you know it, you have this. So same thing with these doodles. It's unpredictable, the best you can do. So, but here's my rule of thumb. Dogs, especially the smaller breeds, I would say this at nine pounds to six months, this is a small breed. They usually won't double or they'll come close to doubling, but not much more than their weight at four months. So if this dog was say six pounds at four months, probably at full grown, he might be 12, 13, stretch it to 14, but that'll give you an idea range he'll be in. So larger breeds are a little more difficult to predict. There, I would say whatever their six-month weight is, they probably won't double or they'll come close to doubling. But you know, if he's nine pounds now at six months, and let's say it was a big breed, let's say he was 30 pounds, will he get to 60? Maybe, but probably around there or less. So there's your, again, if you have a dog that you know what it weighed at four months, and now he's a full-grown dog, he's three times that, I want to know about it. But uh, typically, with most dogs, it's a prediction. Let's see, there was another question that came in. I love the fact that I have here on the show. What do you, what do you, I have so my sister Bethany is on the show, right? And Val, who I've known, Val's sister and I were high school classmates. 
and I take care of her dogs and they're friends. So now they're having a little inside conversation. That's great. So um, if this is a way for me to get people together, then it's worth it. Hello, Janice. And um, what I love the fact is that I have a lot of you that I've known for a long time. And now my friend and classmate just joined the show. And uh, that happens to be my sister's husband. So, um, okay. Do I think more dogs are getting cancer due to food? It's a, you know, no one really knows. It may be that we're, we're getting better at diagnosing the problems and that could be, you know, part of it. And it may not just be food. It could be just environment in general. The same, you know, fears that we have about our environment might be affecting our pets. Also remember, because we're doing a better job, I would like to think so anyway, of keeping our pets alive longer, we may be seeing more and more cancers. But then let's take, for example, the golden retriever, who, you know, they, they were known for certain cancers. The boxer was the number one cancer dog. Now we're seeing golden retrievers are the number one cancer dog. Now, is that because they're more popular than a boxer? If you go on the AKC, so we're seeing more of them. More of them are being registered and, and I think more adopted. There are more crosses involving golden retrievers. So is that why we're seeing more cancers? Or has, have things changed in the food they're eating, the food we're feeding them, uh, the environment? And uh, again, I can't say it would be a very interesting study to find out, are there any known carcinogens that, that are popping up in some of the foods that we're feeding our dogs? But it's also the gene pool. Remember, if you don't have, I'm sure we've all heard stories of people that get lung cancer and never smoked a cigarette a day in their life. All right. Conversely, there are people, my grandparents' generation, that smoke cigarettes all the time and never got cancer, lived into their 90s right, or late 90s. So because there's a, there are certain genes that carry certain cancers, and if they don't have the gene that will switch on in response to that carcinogen, then you can have you don't smoke all day long, you're not going to get lung cancer. So maybe, as with golden retrievers, the why we're seeing it and did in past boxers, when dogs breed and they have that gene in them, and then they breed with another dog, then there's a greater likelihood that that gene will be in the puppies. And then they can end up getting that cancer once the gene is turned on. Now, the question is, what turns those genes on? And we have no idea. But it leads me to the next point. In talking to uh, one of my mentors, um, brilliant doc, basically her name, Barb Kitchell. She's, I, I, I mean, she was, a, she's a, obviously a DVM. She was an internal medicine, board certified, then board certified in oncology. And then just for the heck of it, went to Stanford for a PhD in comparative oncology. So I think she knows her stuff. After her, her PhD, I asked her, I said, so what did you learn? What's the first thing she said to me is, Jeffrey, we've learned how little we know about cancer. That's kind of scary. But she feels, and many do now, that it is going to be the answer is going to be in the immune system, teaching the immune system, however we can do that, to fight its own cancer. Perfect example, melanoma. Now vaccine, taking melanoma cells creating a vaccine, injecting it back into the dog to stimulate an immune response so the dog can beat its own cancer. And we're seeing that a lot. So um, great question. We just don't know enough about it. New York Yankee. Hi, how are you? Cooling beds for dogs. Yep. It depends where you're living. Obviously, they have to be of a material that is not going to absorb urine and feces. However, it can't be a material that has no breathing because then what will happen is the dog lying on it will sweat. So um, you know anything that you can easily wash would be appropriate. And uh, if they, uh, if the dog likes it, it's got to be obviously of a fabric that they're attracted to to want to lie down in. 
So, but um, I think there, it's a great material. I mean, it's a great type of a great concept in bedding, especially if you're someplace where the weather is really, really hot. All right. Hello to all, especially I've seen names that I haven't seen before. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, do organic flea products first. Uh, now we're getting to an area where, I, you know, like it used to be, oh, just put Avon Skin So Soft on them and that'll repel all the fleas. My feeling is the safer, like the less chemical the product, the less effective. Now, are there products out there that seem to work? Yes. And if they do, hey, let me know. But to, to tell you how, how difficult it is, is that look what's happened to the, the number one fleet products on the planet 18 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, frontline, fipronil, the active ingredient, and advantages in canine advantix, imidacloprid, the active ingredient. Extremely effective, very safe, still very safe. But what happens with overuse and time? Fleas become resistant. And now you can get that stuff at Costco, right? At a regular pet store, no prescription needed. But guess what? It is, I wouldn't say not effective at all, but nothing like the efficacy that it used to be when they first were introduced many years ago. So where does that leave us? With the new class, the isoxazolines, which are your Semperica, your Credilio, your Nexgard, and your Brevecto, very effective. And again, are they 100% safe? No. We've also learned that dogs that are predisposed to seizures might get some seizure stimulation from the isoxazolines. Which one? We don't know. So, you know, it's a hit or miss. You got to use things. Um, you look for safety. Um, if I talk to my guru, friend, Dr. Flea, now Professor Emeritus at Kansas State University, Mike Dryden, great guy. If you were to ask him, and they do all, their lab did all the research. There's not a fleet product that gets to market in the veterinary world that didn't go through his lab for studies of safety, efficacy, et cetera. He has his own dogs on isoxazolines. I have my dog on isoxazolines, never had a problem. They all do five dogs. They all do great. So I think that the safer the product, the more organic, unless there's a product out there that I don't know about because I'm not an herbalist, then I would say you may have to stick with the veterinary recommended products, which are chemicals. But like, for example, what Mike Dryden told me at one point, some of the chemicals that they use have zero, I repeat, zero effect on a mammal. It just goes through the system. It's specifically geared towards the insect and their neurologic system. So it's totally safe. You, you, the dogs can drink it. In fact, the isoxylines, all except Provecta, which has an option for a topical, they're oral and they're no problems. So I'm not concerned. If you can find something that's really, really good, then um, let me know. All right. Is okay to wash dog weekly, causing skin issues. Uh, I want someone else to ask me questions. Eloise, Vicky, see, when you know a lot about dogs, and Vicky's been our guest, and she's going to be on our guest again, she knows a lot. So she's coming up with the questions that you guys should be asking, but it all depends on the dog. And the question is, is it okay to wash a dog weekly? Can it cause skin issues? So it all depends. If you're washing a dog with the appropriate medication because of a skin issue, not only once, sometimes I recommend twice a week, dogs with severe fungal yeast infections, severe pyodermis, bacterial skin infections, may need twice weekly baths. But you have to use the right shampoo, something that's not going to dry out the skin more and create more problems. Now, if you have a dog that is perfect, has no skin disease, might weekly bathing dry out the skin a little bit? Well, if it's the wrong shampoo, yes. If you use the right shampoo, a moisturizing anti-seborrheic shampoo, and then it's probably okay. The key really is in order for shampoo to work well, it's got to sit on the body, usually lather it up, sit for at least five minutes, if not seven to 10 minutes, and then thoroughly thoroughly rinsing off. They need to be thoroughly rinsed. If you leave residue, that's what can cause some problems. 
a good immune boost for dogs? Well, it all depends. I know they say that good immune boosts are going to be some of your glutathione reductase, peroxidase, vitamin E, any of the antioxidants. Good antioxidants seem to help the immune system. CoQ10 seems to work. I take CoQ10 every day and um, I don't get sick. Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if it's CoQ10 because before that, I really never got sick a lot either, but it's meant to you know, stimulate immunity. For that's a good question for you know, maybe a, a naturopath or an immunologist that really knows what things that we can do. But I, they say really a good, healthy diet is good for the immune system. Staying lean is good for the immune system. Whether vitamins help, I take vitamins and multi, I take glucosamine, I take my CoQ10. So again, is it the genes or is it the fact that I supplement? I don't know. But do I fear that if I stop taking them and then my immune system changes. Can I get back to where I was by starting up? I don't know. And therefore, guess what? I'm not taking any chances. So, but there are definitely supplements out there that are supposedly good for the immune system. Trifexis, right. Now, trifexis is the middle road. So that came after, obviously, fepronil and imidacloprid, but before the new isoxazolines. I still do see a lot of success. So my feeling about that is if you've been using it and it's still working, then don't switch. Because why take a risk? You know, you know, it's funny when I remember with, with, when we think of um, the different type of anesthetic agents that we use, and I've watched the trend go from when I started practicing 40 years ago with metaphane and halothane, fluothane, and um, isoflurane, now sevoflurane. You know, and I remember when I was working with a great board certified surgeon, Dr. Ed Leeds, and Ed was using, when we switched to, a lot of us were switching to sevo, Ed was sticking to halothane. I go, well, Ed, why? He says, because I've been using it for years. I know how it works, right? I'm comfortable with it. The way I use it is extremely safe. Why would I want to switch to something I don't, haven't tried or used enough yet? And I, it's a good argument. So my feeling is that if you know, the Trifexis is still working, it is a good product, a Comfortis and Trifexis. I've used a lot. In fact, we still have Comfortis. Then I would definitely stick with it. All right, 918, I'm getting dirty looks from Mark. We have to go into our... Uh, our commercial break. So Eloise with that neutering in Spain, we're going to talk about that. And that's a great question for you next time you're on the show, but I'll throw two of my cents in. And that's about all I have left for two cents. But anyway, don't go away. We're back after these short messages. Give me a second. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. And we have the thumbs up. We're good to go. All right, so question came in. You need to see a dog's ribs to make sure they're the right weight. So here's how I feel about this. Some of the, the things, criteria for when it comes to how do we know if the dog is of the right weight. So number one is it's a matter of looking down from the top to the bottom 
do they kind of curve in at the waist? If they're basically a rectangle, okay, then uh, where I joke and say, gee, the dog makes a better, co better coffee table, then a little too heavy. Likewise, when you look at them from the side, the chest, the, from the distance from the bottom of the dog's chest to the floor, all right, that is the deepest, it's the shortest it should be distance. Now, as they go up their back, then their waist and the, after the ribcage, they should come up, extending that distance from the floor. And if it's flat on the side, if you look at them on the side and it's just also a box, probably too heavy. Now, pinch the inch test. Grab them around the rib cage. You should not be able to see the ribs, except for an exception. I'll give you that in a minute. But you should be able to feel the ribs. If you really can't feel the ribs, or if you could take some skin in your hand and you can feel the fat, then chances are your pet needs to lose weight. Now, what breeds might you normally see ribs? Those are the sight hounds. Those are your, you know, your Borzois, your Salukis, your Greyhounds, your Whippets, even your Italian Greyhounds. Those dogs, the sight hounds, you might be able to see the ribs. They're just known to be thin. In fact, typically, like for a Greyhound or a Saluki, if you can't see the ribs, chances are they may be too heavy. So these are things we have to look at. So it all depends. But if you have a, a regular dog, as opposed to irregular dog. If you have a dog that's not a sighthound and you can see the ribs, there's a good chance they may be a little too thin. However, there are some breeds, because again, we see so many crosses now. My daughter, my younger daughter, just adopted, well, she was fostering. It looks like it'd be another foster failure, dog number five, that would definitely some sort of mastiff, but also very thin. She's feeding this guy six cups in the morning and six, I mean, this it's a big dog anyway, but a ton of food, and yet he's still thin. So might just be him. So uh, I'm not telling him to lose weight. Now, can pressure and release be applied to grooming? I need some more understanding. Let me know. Can pressure, would you be more specific and let me know? Uh, thoughts of getting a puppy when you're 14. Ah, so Janice, I've done that before. In fact, I did it when one of my dogs was getting old and I wanted to get a puppy, and I did. It worked out great. The theory is, that getting a young dog with another dog can bring back some life, you know? But the other part of the part is a uh, part of the, the, the problem may be that there's rejection. The older dog might start to snip get, you know, because it's lost. It's, you know, they, they, they have less patience. And the puppy, of course, wants to play. And the dog says, enough already. I'm sick of playing. And they might bite. So what I would recommend doing is first getting a smaller, younger dog to come visit and see how your older dog responds. If it seems to have fun and accept the pup, then it might be good because it does. I mean, for us, that dog started playing again. He ended up living to 16 and a half. I mean, how bad could that be? A Labrador, no less. So it's unfortunately it's a hit or miss and you won't know until you try. But try testing the waters first with having a visitor come by. All right. Uh, temperature's very hot, which many dogs are suffering heat exhaustion. Remind everyone that it's deadly for dogs. Bulldog, yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much. My life with corgis. Yeah, you got to be really, really careful. I mean, it is hot out there. Palmdale, very hot. It's, it's uh, probably over 100. And bulldogs, certain brachycephalic breeds have a tough time. The criteria, even for just hot, right, still needs 100% access to shade, plenty of fresh water at all times. And if it's that hot, if it reaches temperatures, where they and you, you better bring them inside. Bring them inside, air conditioned, fan, or just to be inside and not outside. But again, you need good air circulation. Sometimes, you know, obviously in a house, um, we have some empty rooms. Kids are all gone, right? We don't leave the air on. We have everyone has their own register. So I can walk into some rooms and it's hot. So don't think just because you're coming to the house 
that it's going to be safe. But yeah, I've heard many, many stories. And also, if you have a pool, make sure that you have a pool gate because I also hear stories, just as a practitioner, of dogs that had access to a pool. They're hot, they're tired, they want to swim. And uh, like I watch, my lab now is 12, my yellow, and he swims. He's like, we're going to go swimming today. But I have to watch him because he thinks he's still six and he runs after that ball and he dives in. But I'm watching him swing back to the stairs and every trip back, it's a little bit more effort. And then getting out of the pool, more effort each time. So you got to be really smart. Uh, water bowl. So, okay. Now let's talk about that again. We're doing all these questions. Thank you all so much for joining me. So water bowls, if, if the dog is not allergic to any of the materials. So some of the allergens often are melamine, plastics can have it, rubber can have it. So if you have a dog or you suspect if they get a muzzle dermatitis, I always ask, what kind of bowl do you feed and, and um, give water? And if it's plastic or rubber or any man-made material, I say, you got to switch out stainless steel. It's got to be stainless steel. So you know, just you know, know that. But if your dog does not have problems, plastic is okay. Uh, melamine seems a good one because it's hard plastic and it's usually it's hard to break. They chew on it. And that's another thing. If a dog is a chewer, especially a young dog, and all of a sudden you have no toys available. So what do they go after? They go after their food bowl or their water bowl. Then again, you might want to use something like stainless. Anyway, any other lab is very hot. Thank you so much. So all of you who brought in questions, I really appreciate it because first of all, as you know, it makes the show go really quickly and you know, it helps me know what type of information you guys want. I want to leave the show with something that I'm not happy about, but I think, and I've seen a lot, a lot, and I don't, I don't like blasting companies, but I don't like false advertising, okay? Uh, where can I donate unused dog food? You can probably donate it to any of the many, many shelters and rescues would love to have it. We do the same, not only dog food, you know, some dogs that, that end up having to leave us to that better place, if you will, and have meds left over they were using when they were sick, you know, we'll take it in. I work with a number of rescues and they would love it. You know, we don't have the same rules. I'm not worried about, you know, especially with my clients that they're spiking the, the meds where it's going to cause harm to someone else. These are our meds. They're not messed with. They're not tampered with. And if they can provide some benefit for other dogs that need it, uh, hey, I'm all for it. So, so here's what I was going to say as we leave. And I have a few minutes. I don't like false advertising. For example, if you were to go to a place that was, uh, it says emergency, it's an emergency clinic, an emergency hospital. Would you end up thinking or not thinking that this place at least has one board certified emergency room? It's either they call it certified by emergency medicine critical care certification by the AVMA, the American Vet Med Association. They call themselves an emergency clinic. We're not talking urgent care, emergency. So I deal as an expert witness in a lot of cases, and I'm dealing with a case right now that was so badly mishandled. And the client, thinking that she was going to an emergency clinic, assumed, of course, that there's someone there who is certified in emergency medicine and can do the right thing for this pet. Unfortunately, the doctor there was a young, inexperienced doctor. And that's, you know, who gets the late shift usually at these places? It's the intern. It's the new graduate. And sadly to say, this dog ultimately passed away and it should not, it just annoys me. So make sure that if you're going to go to an emergency clinic, an emergency hospital, they, now that doctor doesn't have to be necessarily there at that shift, but they are always make themselves available. And that young doctor can pick up the phone, say, this is what we got, doc. This is what I think is going on. We know what should we do. Secondly, 
And this one bothers me even more. And this is a, a warning. Uh, this would be one. I've worked with Joel Grover, you know, investigative reporter at NBC. Remember him? I've done some stories with him. This would be great. So again, you're going to a place that in its name is dental. It's, now, therefore, you'd think if it's something, something dental, I'm not going to bury them yet, but I'm going to try. Then you would think that they have a board certified dentist on staff. They don't, not a single one. And they have multiple offices around LA and maybe other parts of the country. I'm not sure. I'm looking into it now that you think you're going to a dental specialty place. There's a dog and cat dentist. All right. So that's really good. In fact, one of them, I know Jenna Weiner, Dr. Sagawa, they are great board certified dentists. Are they expensive? Yes. Do they deserve it? Yes. This is a three or four year residency after vet school, going sitting through boards. If you have advanced need, advanced dental care, that's who you go to. It's called the dog and cat dentist. Love them. Now, but if you go to another place that says so-and-so dental, and you think that they are also specialists, not a one. They, not, they don't even have a single board-certified dentist associated with their hospital group. And yet, they are so pull-happy that I've had clients coming in, and they don't even always take x-rays, and literally 15 teeth pulled, quoting $4,000. It is a crime. And so my point is, be careful. Get second opinions. Don't go there just because you see the name dental. Check with your veterinarian first. Most of us do routine dentals. We take dental x-rays. We can do extractions. Do all general practitioners do root canals? No. Do they put on braces if needed? No. But most dogs don't need that stuff anyway. So for routine care, your general practitioner probably do it and will do it less expensively than of this kind of place. And if it's something that really does need advanced care, or it's a broken tooth that you want to save, you want to do a root canal or a pulpotomy, and you don't, I don't do it, I would send it to a real veterinary dentist. So don't be fooled by the names and ask if there's a specialty that you're looking for, a derm clinic, make sure that someone there is. There's a place called Skin and Ear right here in West LA. Yes, they do have board certified veterinary dermatologists on staff. And usually one every day is there. So keep in mind, you can see it's a hot button for me. I'm very angry because I just saw some terrible work done and terrible quotes given for several thousand dollars for a dog that I talked them out of it when they told me where they were going. I said, don't you dare. They came to me, did dental x-rays, three extractions. That's all it needed, three extractions. And they weren't even major extractions. So anyway, I mean, the teeth were so loose already. You didn't even need the x-rays to tell. But on the tooth that they said they have to pull, the x-rays were totally fine. So buyer, beware. That's all I can say. Any other questions like this? This is great. I would love to do series like this. People who feel they've been ripped off. I want to hear about it. I want to share it with our viewers, our listeners, because if I can prevent that happening to you, then that would make my day. Anyway, have a great week, everybody. Uh, have your questions come in. Love, thank you so much for joining me here on Pet Life Radio and on Instagram Live. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Looking forward to hearing you during the week. And any of you who are my clients, looking forward to seeing you soon at the office with your little furry four-legged friends. Thanks a lot and have a great the rest of your weekend. And we'll see you next week. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.